رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين All praises due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad and on his family and his companions and all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day now uh, we're going to continue on to complete the lesson on um, fasting Saum or we said also the other name for it is Siam and we stopped at the point where we talked about the, um, the various benefits that there are in fasting just in quick review you know we said that the fasting first and foremost the goal of fasting was to develop uh, consciousness of Allah God consciousness so in Arabic it's called taqwa this was the goal of fasting this is what Allah says in the Quran لَعَلَّكُمْ فَاسْتَقُونَ this is the goal of fasting because when a person fasts this is something between him and Allah only Allah knows that he's fasting because he can pretend he can eat before he leaves in the morning whilst he's at work he can sneak in the you know some room where nobody's watching he can take something to eat he can go in the bathroom he can smoke a cigarette he can do anything he can break his fast right but when he comes out he appears to be fasting in front of everybody else so this is something between him and Allah so because of that the um, the fasting itself, the goal, the essential goal of fasting is to develop that God consciousness. And if and, and in reality, it is the God consciousness, the consciousness of Allah, which controls the individual and makes him a better person. Because the laws of society function effectively when the people fear the law and when they see representatives of the law I mean if there's a policeman there or you fear the embarrassment of being caught then you will not steal but if you feel there's no policeman there and you don't care whether you're caught or not then you will steal whereas it is your consciousness of the law which will prevent you from stealing under all circumstances whether there is a policeman there or not whether there, the opportunity presents itself or not and your fear is not of being caught and embarrassed in the society but your fear of meeting Allah on the day of judgment and you have uh, taken the rights of others which will be taken back from you on the day of judgment so it's your fear of Allah which, which makes you know, the individual, a just and honest individual in society. So this is why in a true Muslim country, it's not necessary to have the type of police force that you have, say, for example, in America. America, in as advanced a society as it is in everything, for you to be a policeman there, you have to be at least six foot, you know, six foot tall. You must weigh at least a hundred and... 70 pounds you know you have to be a brute a monster a big man who when the people see you they fear you and you carry all these weapons and batons you know, and if you see the American policemen you know they're all they have big clubs and you know all these bullets out and the guns and you know big helmets and, so they look like they, they, they will really hurt you if they catch you so 
This is what now keeps the people from breaking the law. This is necessary there. And evidence of that, of course, is, you know, the time when, um, about four years ago, five years ago, when there was a blackout in New York. The lights had gone out, the electricity was cut off, you know, for a short period, about a 24-hour period. And during that period, the, the, the whole city went mad. They had television crews, you know, using the lights, floodlights and so forth, you know, taking pictures of people. Well, people were just going all the stores, smashing in the windows, they drove up their trucks, their cars, stealing things that like mad. And this was not limited just to the poor people, to the poorer people of the society. The rich people, of course, the rich people weren't going to the supermarkets. The poor people would go to the supermarkets, they would steal food and things like this, right? The rich people, they were going to the, to the fur stores, you know, the, the, the jewelry stores, they were smashing in the windows, taking in the diamonds and the, and the furs, the, the so-and-so. But they were all there, driving up in their Rolls Royces and their, you know, Mercedes and everything. So it's just showing you that without the physical law being there, then the society would be in chaos. Whereas here we look in Saudi Arabia, and although, as we said, you know, Islamic law is not in total practice here, but still it has been practiced to a large degree, you look at the policeman. I mean, he looks like, in American standards, he looks like a Boy Scout, right? He's a little guy, funny little guy, you know, something happens, you see him carrying away, somebody's done, a, done something, you know, and he's a big guy, this little, little guy carrying him away into the police car. Why? Because of the fact that the fear of God in the society is so strong that the, you know, the criminals, even people who commit crimes, I mean, they do not have even the viciousness, the type of viciousness that you may find in other societies. There's no escape. The law is, is there to deal with the criminals. When a person murders, he's executed. You know, the law is there, but more than that, the consciousness of God is in society so that if a person sees somebody doing anything that might look like it's wrong, they will report. In America, in England, crimes could take place in front of people's eyes. I mean, there was one case I remember reading about two years ago. In uh, broad daylight, a woman was raped on the street, screaming, her lungs out, people walking by without helping her. Right on the street. This happened in New York also. New York, big cities in America, it happens. People are brutalized. You know, in the subway station, a person comes in and starts battering people, taking their money, and so everybody else just stands back. They don't want to get involved. This is the attitude. Whereas, because of the, the fear of Allah in, in Muslim society, this would, because everybody feels they have a responsibility, not just to themselves, but to the society as a whole. If there's somebody being hurt, this is a brother Muslim. He has to be helped. So this motivates the individual, the fear of God motivates the individual to, to fight against crime with, you know, whatever power and ability he has, he would fight against it in society. So he said, the goal of fasting being taqwa. There are benefits of fasting, he said, among them, for example, that it creates in the Muslims a, an awareness to a certain degree of poverty and hunger that others may feel. Those people who are too poor to buy a meal to feed themselves, they're, you know, under this type of pressure where they're unable to feed themselves. They, if a person does not experience to some degree what it means to be hungry, then it is a lot more difficult for him or her to give to the hung hungry, to feel, to understand, to be sympathetic for the hungry. So the fasting, when we fast, 
and we deliberately, we choose to put aside food, then this gives us, by when we feel the pains of hunger and so on in our stomach, this gives us an idea of what those people are going through. We're doing it by choice, but they're not doing it by choice. So it should make us even more conscious. But as I said before, if we break the fast and we eat, you know, till we are so jammed we can hardly breathe, standing up for taraweeh and you're almost falling over because your stomach is so packed. If we're eating like that and before suhoor, you know, when we're eating in the morning, we eat a big, big, big meal. Then we sleep all day and we stay up all night. Of course, this principle that I'm talking about has no meaning because you won't feel hungry. In fact, as we said, there are many people who gain weight in Ramadan because they eat more in Ramadan than they eat outside of Ramadan. So the whole principle of sympathy, understanding, feeling, fearing Allah, all this is gone. The whole principle, although according to the letter of the law, see this is why it's very important to understand that there's a difference between the letter and the spirit. The letter has behind it a spirit. If you just take the letter alone and you leave the spirit, then you may not benefit from the law. You may be going against the law. So, if we fast properly, then inshallah we'll experience that and we'll have, you know, some consciousness of what those who are starving go through. And that will help us, inshallah, to be more generous in our wealth and sharing our wealth with others who are in need. We said also that, you know, it also teaches us uh, control of our desires during the rest of the year outside of Ramadan we know that for the human being the most powerful desire that he has is the desire for food and the desire for sex these are the main two most powerful drives that an individual has he can kill for it right he kills for food in times of hunger if he's starving to death he may kill if he doesn't have any kind of fear of Allah or anything there he may kill people you know you hear people you know uh, being isolated their plane crash or whatever and they're, they're, they're by themselves food runs out then they decide the weakest one amongst them they decide to kill that person eat him right this is their lack of fear of Allah this, this desire to get that food to survive causes them to kill others and the same thing in the case of of sex, the desire for sex leads men, you know, to, to rape women. A man who may even be married or been married many times, has many girlfriends, but yet the, the desire for sex may cause him to go and rape somebody else. So these are two most powerful desires. So the fasting of Ramadan trains us to control these most powerful desires in human beings. To control it so that out of the rest of Ramadan, you know, we were not drawn into sin and into evil and into corruption by these two desires. Because if you're used to holding them back during Ramadan, this training period in Ramadan, you're used to holding them back outside of Ramadan, inshallah, if the difficulty arises, you can control yourself. If you have no training period, no experience in trying to hold these desires back, then, you know, you're finished. When the desire comes, then you follow your desire. We also pointed out that, you know, one of the benefits of Ramadan is that it helps to improve the moral character of Muslims. Because we said that the fasting of Ramadan is not just a physical fast. And we said there was a hadith in which the Prophet Sallallahu you know, has said that Allah has no need for you starving yourself, denying yourself of 
drink, your thirst, and your hunger. He has no need for that. If you do not give up in decent talk and act. So, there is this other aspect of fasting which is essential. That we should control what we speak about and what we do, what we see during the month of Ramadan to, for fasting to be uh, true fasting. We have to do that. Because if we're talking the way we talk concerning women or corruption, etc., or we're looking at Playboy magazine, you know, or some other, you know, watching videos that involve, you know, filthy acts, etc. And we should feel shameful. You know, watching a video where a man climbs into bed with a woman, I mean, uh, you know yourself, and somebody was to say to you, let's go into so-and-so's house when he's making love with his wife and, and watch them. You know, you say, no, no, we have to do that, you know, it's not good. But you're willing to sit and watch it on video. What's the difference, really? I mean, because in your mind you're saying they're acting, but really, think about it. There is not really any difference. If you sit there and watch people climb into bed and make love with each other on the video, it's not different than you standing and peeking in a person's keyhole while he's making love to his wife in his, his bedroom. It's sinful. And you should feel shy. If you don't feel shyness inside yourself, it means something's wrong. You have to look at yourself. Increase your prayer. Ask Allah to put fear in your heart. If you don't feel shyness, if you just feel okay, you sit there, you watch these things, you know, it's, it's alright, it doesn't move you at all. If it comes down, you should put fast forward, go past it quickly. I mean, you should avoid the type of movies that you have that type of thing in it. So, you have to, in the course of fasting, control what you're seeing, what you're saying, and what you're doing. If these don't take, happen, then you are doing the physical fast, fulfilling the letter of the law again, but the spirit is gone. And that fast will be a sin on you, Yamul Qiyamah. Allah will ask you about that fast. It will not be good deeds on your, on your scale of good deeds, but evil deeds on your scale of evil deeds. Of course, um, we also know that doctors have shown that uh, in fasting, a person uh, uses up uh, cholesterol. Again, we're saying this is the true kind of fasting, not the one where you pack yourself and you're sleeping during the day and up all night. But proper fast, where so a person actually is fasting, then what happens is during that period, the, the body uses up you know, the cholesterol, it breaks it down, and they show that this helps people who have problems, heart problems, you know a lot of most of the heart problems, which tend to be one of the major killers amongst mankind now, is heart disease, you know, which cause strokes, etc., etc. This is from the buildup of cholesterol, uh, cholesterol in the uh, blood system, you know, depositing as fat in the, the uh, veins and in the arteries. So this helps to break it down. So there's, there's health benefit here. And also the, the idea of, you know, it's like any machine. If you work a machine, you know, just constantly, 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 it's going to break down eventually. Our systems are machines. By fasting, you also give that year, every year, for a month, you give your system a break. Okay. A overhaul, yeah. You know, you take it into the shop, get it overhauled. <laughs> right? You need it, it's real. 
So that, as I said, on condition that you're doing a proper fast, then it's an overhaul. Otherwise, it's just really, you know, an added burden you're putting on your system if you're not doing the fast accordingly. And of course, the fasting, you know, because of the self-restraint which is involved, it trains us for jihad, fighting in a large way, because of course when the mujahideen, you know, when armies, when people go out to fight, it's common that when uh, people are, are victorious or whatever, then they become, you know, corrupt. They'll run into the cities, they'll murder people, they'll rape the women, you know, steal, this type of thing. And the desire, like which used to happen in Vietnam, is that the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, sometimes would, would capture and, and destroy many Americans based on these same desires. They'll have a woman, for example, North Vietnamese woman, she's, you know, uh, maybe not properly dressed, but she's inviting some GIs to come. She's got herself strapped up with uh, grenades, and they all come thinking they're going to have a good time, and they all come in there, and she pulls the pin and blows them all up. Right? Whereas the Muslim soldier, he would never be drawn into that. He would never be drawn into that. Because of his consciousness, his training, and, and fasting, etc., he would never be pulled. This is the sexual desire now causing people to be destroyed. Right? So it trains because in jihad, this is one of the areas that you know that the people who are involved in fighting and that they have to uh, be very careful of because it's very easy. The human desires are, are are very fine and they can drive you to do all kinds of things you wouldn't normally do. When you find yourself in a position of power over other people, the tendency is to want to use that power. So jihad is a time when, for that jihad to be of benefit for you, as the Imam had said in the the uh, khutbah you know, he had said that um, the Prophet Muhammad had said that there are a hundred degrees or a hundred levels in paradise each one of them is uh, the distance between each one of them is like the distance between the heavens and the earth and these hundred levels are reserved for those who fight jihad so jihad is great benefit great rewards from Allah for jihad. But it only becomes benefit and reward if the people who are fighting have self-restraint from uh, these types of corruptions that we were talking about. So the fasting becomes very important to keep, help to keep that jihad pure for Allah and that corruption doesn't enter into it. Now, after that, we talked about the sighting of the moon. And we said that um, in Islam, we do not follow the, uh, what they call the uh, no, no, not the Gregorian calendar, but we don't follow, in the lunar calendar, we don't follow the, um, the charts that have been set up, you know, where the times are set exactly when the months are going to begin, right? The, the, the lunar calendar, which is put out by astronomers at the beginning of every year, they put out a new lunar calendar for the year, in which they set the months. So we don't follow that. Why? Because we said that their calculations are not 100% accurate. There will always be some error in them because human beings cannot measure anything 100%. There will always be 99 points, so and so and so on. The more accurate the instruments become, it's the bigger the decimal, 0.9999. It's the more accurate, 999. More accurate, 999. But they will never reach 100% because only Allah is perfect. So, their calculations cannot be relied on. 
we rely on the sighting because the sighting is something people can do anywhere in the world. And of course, the Prophet had set down a principle that, you know, if the last uh, day of Sha'ban, that is the 29th of Sha'ban, because month, lunar months are either 29 days or 30, if the last day of Sha'ban becomes cloudy, and this will be the time when you're looking out for the moon of Ramadan, if it becomes cloudy, then you assume that you're still in Sha'ban and you continue to the 30th and you begin your fast after the 30th. You lay down a general principle. Later on you might find out that really Sha'ban was 29 days, right? And uh, the, the day which you call the 30th was really the first of Ramadan. You may find that out later. In which case, if you find it out later, right, <clears throat> you add an extra day of fasting after Ramadan to make up for the day that you missed. If you never found out, well then there's nothing on you. You just went according to the principle. But one thing you would not do is you would not fast 31 days. The maximum days of fasting is 30 days. There are some days on which it is not allowable for you to fast. That, for example, the fasting on Yom al-Jumar and on the Eid, because Yom al-Jumar after the Muslim is like the weekly Eid or the weekly day of celebration. They're not allowed to fast on Yom al-Jumar, except in Ramadan. Or if you are fasting the day before it and the day after it. So it means you, don't, you would also fast like Thursday and Saturday. You don't specify Friday, Yom al-Jumar, for fasting. Not allowed. Forbidden by the Prophet As well as Eid al-Fitr, these other half these days are forbidden for fasting. And also the last three days of Hajj, what they call Ayam al-Tashriq. That's the 11th, 12th, and 13th of Dhul Hijjah. You're not allowed to fast on these days either. We discussed briefly that when a person is traveling, he's allowed to break his fast. We're looking at that when we discuss the uh, area concerning uh, traveling and shortening of salah, etc. The, fast, the person who's fasting during Ramadan, when he's traveling, he's allowed to break his fast. And he, does, he makes up for the days which he missed while traveling when he gets back uh, from the travel. Some people say, well, if the travel is by airplane, it's very comfortable now, you know, there's no pressure on you about fasting, then you don't, you should fast. But no, the Prophet had said that Allah gave us certain concessions, and he likes that the concessions be taken. So, if you're traveling, it is preferable for you to break the fast and make up the day afterwards. If a person is sick, and, you know, for example, doctors have shown, or he, from his own experience, knows he tries to fast, and he finds his sickness increases, you know, then he's allowed also to break the fast. And uh, after Ramadan, he makes up for those days. But if the fast, if the sickness is, is like a terminal sickness, the type of sickness which is not going to get better, you know, he's got what they call, say, terminal cancer. And fasting aggravates it, and there's no getting better, there's no time that after Ramadan he'll be able to you know, make up those days, 
And what he does is he feeds a poor person for every day of the month. Right? Or he feeds 30 poor people on one day. He makes a big meal, he feeds 30 poor people, and they eat. Or he feeds for every day. A woman who is pregnant or breastfeeding, suckling her baby, if she fears for her health or the health of the baby, she also is allowed not to fast and to make up those days after Ramadan. But it should be the condition that she fears for her health and for the baby, like the baby is very sickly or seems to be weak, or she herself is a weak, uh, physically weak, and when she tries to fast, she finds herself, you know, breaking down, she, there's not enough to feed the baby, etc., etc., those type of circumstances, then she's allowed to. But just to say, well, oh, she's feeding the baby, she doesn't have to fast, no. It's a misconception that people have, that automatically, just because she's breastfeeding, or because she's pregnant, she automatically doesn't have to fast, no. It's only if she fears for her health, or for the health of the child, that she's allowed not to fast. If a person breaks the fast deliberately, if it's accidentally, like for example, you know, uh, use a glass of water, you take a drink, or you start to eat in the morning, you get up in the morning, you just forgot that you're fasting, you start, then you realize, ah, I'm fasting. You, this doesn't break your fast. It was accidental, you know, and the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah fed you. But this is, of course, as I said, fasting again is between you and Allah. Because you can always pretend, right, that you didn't know and you were eating and, you know, whatever I'm saying. But between you and Allah, Allah knows if you really actually forgot or whether you didn't. And this includes actually having sex with your wife. Although it is kind of hard to imagine that a person would forget and actually go through the whole process and have sex with his wife and then remember afterwards he was fasting. Right? It's kind of hard to imagine, but... Still, people have the benefit of the doubt that if it so happens, you know, like maybe the first day of Ramadan, second day, you know, when we're just starting, might, this is technically speaking, possible to forget. Uh, as long as it's, it's through forgetfulness, then you just make up the day that you missed. But now if it's deliberate, if it's deliberate, in which you desi- decide, well, it's just too much, the stomach is hurting you, you're hungry, you know, you just feel like you need to take a drink, so you're taking a drink. Then, to make up for that day that you have broken deliberately, you have to now fast 60 consecutive days. 60 consecutive days. Meaning that, if you fast 30 days, and then you didn't fast the 31st day, you have to start all over again. 60 consecutive days. 60 days, one half of the other. Yeah, I mean, what it is, it's like atonement. Because, of course, a person who does not fear Allah at all, if he didn't fast Ramadan or he deliberately breaks his fast of Ramadan, is he going to fast 60 days? No. It's like the equivalent of penance. You know, in Christianity, like when people did certain wrong things, they might put a cross on their back and drag it, you know, up some mountain or something like this, right? They have different ways of it. They walk without shoes, you know, over gravel and things like this, you know, some kind of physical punishment that they punish themselves to, to uh, relieve themselves of the sin, of the act that they have done. In Islam, again, this is a sin here, but the punishment, you could say, or the atonement, 
is comes from the same uh, category as the act that was supposed to have been done. So it's fasting. It is to if a person sincerely does the 60-day fast, then that will help him overcome the desire to break it on you know another occasion. And also the fear of having to do it, you know, to fast 60 days, also helps the person who might have the desire to break the fast, but he knows that he is, uh, he will have to fast 60 days afterwards, you know, and he has some fear of Allah. This will help him also to restrain himself from breaking the fast. Now, one of the fundamental principles of fasting is known as suhoor. Suhoor is the light meal which is taken just before dawn. And I said light meal. This is the point we talked about. It's a light meal taken just before dawn. If a person wakes up and sunrise is already there, or the, the light is in the sky, the adhan has been given already, he is not allowed to eat then, he has to just go into the fast. But that meal, see, some people also go to bed deliberately, knowing in their mind they have no plans to get up for sahur. They eat at night, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock at night, they eat a big meal, they figure, okay, khalas, I don't need to get up for sahur. This is wrong. Prophet said you should take the sahur. Even if it's just a glass of water, you should take sahur. This is to distinguish yourself from the Jews, others, you take the support. Because in other systems, people may fast like 24-hour fast. 24-hour fast is forbidden in Islam. So you must take the support. But if you, as I said, oversleep it or something, you know, then it, it, uh, you, it's removed, there's no sin. Also, if you are eating the support and the Adhan goes, you know, you prepared your meal, you take up your glass, or you take up your dish, you're ready to eat, and the adhan goes. What do you do? The Prophet ﷺ said, you should eat from what you have in your hand. The Prophet ﷺ said, you should eat from what you have in your hand, or drink from what you have in your hand, enough to remove from yourself the desire for the food that is in front of you. Right? So the adhan goes, you have the bowl in your hand, even if you started eating or you hadn't started, you eat, finish till you, you feel comfortable from what you've eaten, you put it down and start fasting. Okay? Because I think mistakenly maybe some of you are under the impression that if the adhan goes, you just have to put everything down. What it is is you can't, the adhan goes, you don't go over and outside picking up this and picking up that and, you know, to go and eat, right? That this is just the point. If, if this, whatever you had in your hand, you had a glass in your hand or you had a dish in your hand, you finish eating from or drinking from that which you have in your hand and then you put it down. Okay? Also, if you wake up, you're in an area where there are no clocks or whatever, you judge according to the sky, and in the morning, you look out and it appears to you that dawn hasn't come yet, but it just so happened that the sky cloudy. You can't tell if the sky is cloudy uh, uh, in the early, early morning. You can't tell. It just appears to you that there was, and you ate. And later on you found out, ah, 
you know, somebody came by your house, doctor, they would say, oh, you're still eating. <laughs> it's done. You know, it's done. In this case, there's nothing against you. Because you did not deliberately eat after um, the coming of the dawn. Again, see, Allah judges you according to what your intention is. Remember we said that basic hadith of the Prophet Muhammad in which he said, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالِ بِالْنِيَاتِ The deeds are judged by their intention. The other basic principle or, or practice in the fasting is called iftar, and that is the breaking of the fast. And this should be done immediately after the setting of the sun. As soon as you hear the azan, you should go and do it. The Prophet had said, people will remain happy and prosperous as long as they hasten to break the fast. You should do it immediately. And again, it is preferable that when you break the fast, you take, you know, some dates or some fruit and water, you break the fast, then you go and pray, then you come back and eat. There was an article in the paper, you know, last week, in which one doctor was discussing uh, fasting, and now he pointed out that there were, you know, mistaken ideas. People say that they, if they have ulcers or different conditions, they're not allowed to fast. They, it would be harmful to fast. And he was pointing out, no, it's not harmful. As long as the person follows the basic principle. If when he finished eating, he stuffed himself, then if he has any stomach problems and that, this will increase his stomach problems. But if he takes the light meal, the, when breaking the fast, he takes the three dates or whatever, and he, he's pointed out that dates, and when, of course when he talks about dates, he meant like anything similar to dates, there could be prunes, or it could be raisins, something similar. Once you take these things, they're especially good for breaking the fast because of the fact that they give the system, you know, natural sugars, which are easy for a system to, to break down, to utilize, and, and gives and, and prepares the body for the meal afterwards. Right? He had, you know, quite an elaborate explanation about, you know, why it is good to break the fast with just lightly and also with, you know, some natural fruits which are sweet. Of course there's the dua which you all should learn. You know, Prophet when he broke fast, he said, Allahumma laka tumtu wa ala rizqika Of course, for those of you who haven't learned Fatiha yet, it's better to learn Fatiha first, right? But those of you who have gone fast learning the Fatiha and you know you're learning different things, it's good to learn this dua, you know, in the notes which uh, we sent to you, uh, distributed. You should learn this uh, dua to make this dua on the breaking of the fast. It means, O oh Allah, for you I have fasted, and with your provision I have broken it. See, all these different du'as that we're taking, whether it is before going in the bathroom or going into the masjid or coming out of the bathroom or, you know, putting on your clothes or putting on your shoes or whatever, different du'as Prophet Muhammad used to make, all of them, we can see in them a remembrance of Allah. The whole idea is to help us to remember Allah. It's not to make us, you know, make our lives so mechanical and so rigid, you know, that we can't think for ourselves, which is what some ignorant people in looking at the different practices of Islam, they tend to look at it in this fashion. They think, oh, it seems though, you know, you have to do this, have to do that, must say this, must say that. You know, it's like a robot, all these rituals. But no, the purpose behind it, you can see. That's why it's important for you to know what you're saying. You know, you should not be making du'as, etc., without knowing what you're saying. You know, here it is, Allahumma laka sumtu, oh Allah, for you are fasted. You're trying to purify your intention, to clarify for Allah and for yourself, really, for yourself. Because Allah knows what your intention was. But to remind yourself that your fast was for Allah. 
your fast was not because everybody else is fasting. A cultural fast. A cultural fast which has no reward from Allah. The fast must be for Allah. And with your provision, and with your provision I've broken it. Again, you're recognizing that whatever food, drink, whatever you had there to break the fast, this was from Allah. You're giving thanks to Allah for what He has given you. So this is the value of the dua. In Ramadan, we have extra prayers after Isha, known as Taraweeh. Here are these, these prayers. Taraweeh. Uh, people say Taraweeh, but it's actually Taraweeh. With Alif there, Taraweeh. Uh, these are, according to the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad 11 units of prayer after Isha. Some places they may make 20, right? Commonly in a number of places, but this has no basis in the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad His practice was 11. This is in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim. Aisha said that the Prophet never made more than 11 units of prayer after Isha. And she mentioned that he would do four and four and then three. Right? So it could be done in the form of two, two, and you see them pause, those who do 11. Commonly after every group of four they will pause. Wow, and then they do the next group. It could also be done four and four. You don't, you know, you don't have to make taslims after two. That stop the salah after two. You could actually do four also. It's possible. And this is highly recommended. You know, the added prayers. I mean, because again, we said in Ramadan we should all of our various forms of worship, ibadah, we should try to increase it during this period of time. So. إنا أنزلناه في ليلة القدر وما أدراك مع ليلة القدر ليلة القدر خير من ألف شهر The night of power worshiping the night of power is better than ألف شهر One thousand months Prayer in a thousand months right? One would say wow I mean it, You know if you prayed on that night it's better or worse more than or equivalent to the worship in a thousand months. That means if you pray then, you know, you divide twelve into a thousand, you don't need to pray for the next so many years. No, of course. <laughs> see, this is a very twisted approach. You see, the whole purpose of Nayatul Qadr is not for this purpose. Because the person who's going to think in this line, right, his worship is not for Allah. A person who thinks in this light, his worship is not for Allah. It's just like some people, for example, I would meet, you know, some people from uh, this part of the world in America, and they're very corrupt. They're going to discos, visiting prostitutes, all the different, they're just out of it there in America. And you try to speak to them, you know, listen, you know, brother, fear Allah, you know, control yourself. You're, you're Muslim, you know. So don't, we don't, don't worry about this, you know, when we go back, we go and make uh, Umrah and remove our sins, khalas. <laughs> This is a very mistaken idea in their mind. That they can do all this corruption and then go back and make Umrah and wipe out all the corruption. Because true, true, Prophet has said that from Umrah to Umrah it wipes out the sins that are between them. But, I mean, 
What kind of Umrah is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam talking about? He's talking about a true Umrah, where one fears Allah and does Umrah for the pleasure of Allah. Not a person who feels that the ritual, he doesn't fear Allah because there is an American doing all this corruption. Obviously he doesn't, he's not even thinking about Allah. So there's no fear of Allah there. So his Umrah is only a ritual. He is going through the physical acts of going around the Kaaba and he's just tying himself out. That will not remove any evil deeds. So it's a distortion in his mind. And also, there is a, a sense of stupidity to it. Because does he have any guarantee that he will make it back to make the Umrah? No. Who can guarantee what's going to happen tomorrow? Right? So, similarly, this night of how we seek it, we do extra worship, so that, inshallah, in sincere worship, our worship may match that night and we get that added reward. These are added rewards. And Allah, it's not really unusual because we know in the various things of Islam, Allah has given added value to certain things. We know that, for example, prayer in Mecca is worth a thousand prayers elsewhere. Sorry, a hundred thousand prayers elsewhere. Right? Prayer in the Prophet's masjid is worth a thousand prayers elsewhere. Prayer in masjid, Aqsa, is worth five hundred times prayers elsewhere. So, Allah has given certain values to these. Prayer in the masjid, in Jama'ah is worth 27 times prayer at your home. Right? So there are different acts, different times, different uh, places wherein the value of the prayer there increases. But it only increases with sincerity in these various acts of worship. I mean the ritual will never increase the value. The ritual is a sin. The ritual without the spirit is a sin against yourself. Okay, inshallah, this uh, covers the um, main principles of uh, Ramadan. So if there are any questions you know, you'd like to ask concerning Ramadan and the practices. You? Eid al Fitr? No, Fitr. I know it's about the payment of the Fitr. Oh, Zakat al Fitr. Yes, I Okay, no, Zakat al Fitr, we'll cover that in more detail uh, next sitting because we're going to do Zakat. We'll do Zakat as a whole, and after looking at Zakat as a whole, we'll also look at Zakat al Fitr. So, you know, so as not to repeat ourselves, you're coming next Friday, inshallah, so we'll cover it. That time. Yeah. We still have some time. And if tomorrow is the cat of fitter, then I'll do it right now, okay? Because yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll discuss this. We'll go through it. Discuss, inshallah. Are there any other questions concerning Ramadan or uh, anything outside of Ramadan? Uh, yes, about Ramadan. Uh, 
No, it's the, the, the feeding of the feeding of a poor person. This will be in the case where your sickness will not uh, get better. You've got you think you're or it's old age, for example. You're very old and you're physically weak. But if you try to fast, you find yourself like you're about to die. So you say, I can't fast, right? Or, for example, you are under intravenous treatment. You know, you're, you're sick, you're lying there, and they give you intravenous. Intravenous, you're feeding yourself constantly. So you can't fast, right? These circumstances where there's no... You know, this is the constant state that you're in. Then you do the fibia, where you feed uh, a poor person for every day, it's of, of Ramadan, 30 days, right? Whereas in the case of a person who is just sick temporarily, you know the sickness is going to come back, no, go away after, sometimes, then if you've missed some days because of the sickness, or you missed the whole of Ramadan because of the sickness, once you get well, then you, you no, then you fast. Then you have the fast to do. Some people hold that not only do you fast, but you also pay. You know, you give the fidya as well as fasting. There is difference of opinion on it, but what is most obvious is that at least you would you take the fast. Well, taking medicine is the medicine involves something that you're drinking, or it's intravenous, right? Then it would break your fast, right? And in which case, although you may be doing it deliberately, but it's out of necessity because you're sick, then you make up that name. But if it is an injection, for example, they give you, you know, an injection of vitamin C, or you get an injection for traveling, you get some antibiotics, or, you know, um, vaccination, these don't break your fast. Some people have said they break the fast also, but it doesn't. Because the whole idea is, it's feeding. You see, what you, if you take something which is which involves in its food, that you're taking food, you're drinking or you're eating, in the veins is instead because you can't take it in your mouth, it's being put in your veins. Liquid is going in your veins, but it's giving you glucose, something like that. This is food. This is you're feeding your system. Whereas in the case of a medicine in the form of a vaccination, so this is not feeding. So this doesn't break your fast. I think it's within the stimulant. Well, naturally, because this would be like food. This would be coming under the same category of food. It's not out of sickness, right? Or out of need. Your body needs this to protect itself from some germs or something like this. This is like food. Uh, this is stimulus when you're taking it that way. It is that you are actually putting in some food thing in your body which will give your body strength, some food form. So it would be, yeah, it would be breaking your fat. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
Well, no, if you're too poor to give, then how can you give? You know, if you're too poor and you're sick, you can't fulfill the fasting, you can't give the sick yet, then it's removed from you. Allah, you know, absolves you of it. You're not healthy or constant. I mean, this was a case in which the man came to Prophet Muhammad Actually, this wasn't the case of sickness, but in the case where the man, he had sexual relations with his wife in Ramadan, you know, and um, the Prophet said, well, okay, you have to fast 60 days. But he explained to him that his desire, it was his strong desire that he had which caused him to uh, break the fast in the first place. If he had to go 60 days, for sure he would do it. Okay? So, you know, this was his case. So the Prophet said, well, okay, then you must um, uh, feed uh, 60 people. He said, uh, you know, 64 people. He said, but I'm the poorest person in the whole area. <laughs> he said, so the Prophet there had been some zakat of fitr which had been given earlier, which was uh, zakat, which was made from, from a date. He said, okay, bring some dates to So he gave him the dates and he left. Okay? But this was because of this fact that this was his circumstance. You know, Islam is flexible in that sense, sense of recognizing a person's circumstance, not demanding of him that which he is unable to do. Yes. I mean, of course, you have to be careful not to swallow, you know. So you brush your teeth, then you should spit, and make sure you spit, get it out there. But the Prophet we, we that's based on the fact that he used to make siwak, right? He used to use the miswak or the tooth stick. He used it during Ramadan. He said when you're gargling, in fasting, that you shouldn't let the water go to the back of your throat. Normally when you gargle, you should... He said, you know, that you should be excessive in your gargling. I know a lot of people when they gargle, when they're washing their mouth, they only put the water in their mouth, they go, spit it out. But no, when you put the water in your mouth, you should go, you should clean out the back of your throat. Most people don't do it. That's the proper way to do it, except in Ramadan. Outside of Ramadan, in Ramadan, you just now take it in your mouth and spit it out. But if you're doing that normally, you're not doing it correctly. Prophet said, Balihu. You should you should be excessive in it. You should do it right. Get it right in the back of your throat before spitting it out. And we're cleaning out your mouth. Because if you just go like this, the whole back part of your throat, which is where a lot of the germs and so on so will collect, you know, because when you're getting a sore throat, where does it come from? It's always in that back part, isn't it? When you get all the, the where the um the mucus and also builds up, it's always in the back part of the throat there. So this is the, the, the proper what they call mud in Arabic, the proper way is to take it back there then spit it out. And when you're taking istinshaq, when you're taking the water, again, something with the cook, then. But what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to go, you're supposed to inhale the water. You take it up into your nose. I don't mean until it goes into your lungs, right? And then there's a point, you know how to stop. Then you choke yourself, huh? You take it up though, it should go up into your nose, right into the back part of your nose. And then blow it out. And uh, one point to note also in, in making wudu, that wiping the back of the neck is not from the sunnah. It's bidah. You know, some people, when they're making wudu, after washing the fit hands, wipe the head, then they go like this with the hand, the back of the neck. 
This is not from the Sunnah Prophet. Somebody may say, well, well, what's wrong? You know, why are you going to say Bida? You know, what's wrong with wiping the back of your neck? Well, I say. If the thing is, why stop there? Okay, why not wash your hand all the way up to your armpit? Right? Why not wash your foot all the way up to your knees? You know? And teach that as we do. See, the thing is that if you wash your foot and you wash above your foot, there's no harm in it, in the sense that when you're washing, you're supposed to wash at least to your ankle, right? If you increase it, there's no harm. But now if you teach that as what your people are supposed to do, then it becomes without. You understand? So if you're wiping your head, and in the course of wiping your head, your head hand goes on the back of your neck, there's no harm if you just did that, like there was sweat on the back of your neck, so you just did that too. But now if that becomes your regular practice and you teach that to others and you feel that that's what you're supposed to do in voodoo, then you're making what they call bid'ah or an innovation in the religion. See, and Islam is very, you know, very careful about not having any additions. The Prophet Muhammad he's the one who brought Islam. And this is what keeps Islam pure until Yom Qiyamah. Because once you open the door for all these things, there's no end. And this is what happened to Christianity. The people did not keep to the sunnah of Prophet Isa. They didn't keep to the sunnah. They went against the sunnah and uh, added innovations, dropped things, added things until now. What they're practicing is unrecognizable. I mean, if Isa was to come today and see what Christians are practicing, call themselves Christians, I mean, he would not recognize this from, you know, religious practice at all. He couldn't, it's unrecognizable. Any other yeah. questions? Outside of Ramadan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we last Wednesday we in our professor Khan discussed the creation of Adam and the intermediate of Iblis in Bawi. And we specified that Iblis is among the angels. It's an angel. He said that Iblis was an angel? Yeah. No, are you sure he said he was an angel or he said he was among the angels? There's a difference between the two, right? Because Iblis was a jinn, but he was among the angels. Allah had, uh, had raised his station, given him a position, a lofty position, because of certain uh, knowledge and abilities which he had over the rest of the jinn. And that had given him the right to be among the angels. So he was among them in their group. This is why Allah said... Yeah, he was saying that uh, Allah has commanded the angels mm-hmm. to bow down, mm-hmm. but uh, Iblis did not. Yes. This is in Quran. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then uh, he's saying that the angels are created just to obey God. Mm-hmm. The to God. Yeah. And uh, he was also telling that Iblis did not, uh, did not reject God, but reject the... Bowing to Allah. Mm-hmm. So, sort of like that. So it's confusing. Because you are telling before that Iblis said that jinn was. Yeah, Iblis was a jinn. You know, a jinn has a choice between believing or not believing. Iblis was, when in refusing to obey God, he became a bad jinn. Up until that point, he was not a bad jinn. He was not an angel. It says right in the Quran, Kana min al jinn. 
Quran says specifically that he was a jinn. And Iblis actually in his explanation, he even says, when Allah asked him, why didn't you bow to Adam? He said, because he was made, you made him of clay and you made me of fire. And we know the angels are made from light. Prophet said that. The angels are made from light and the jinn are made from smokeless fire. So fire, not fire as we know you light a match, fire to the jinn is made from fire. No. But a elemental fire, it could be, you know, Allah knows, nuclear fire or whatever, you know. But a fire which is smokeless, it's not the fire that we know in regular life. Some people may ask, well, how could they go to the hellfire, the bad jinns this? If they're from fire and you're going to, how is Allah going to punish them with the hellfire? Well, the point is that it's not a problem because you know, you're made from clay, right? But I can take a piece of clay that's been hardened and smash you and kill you with it. Can't I? So the fact that you were made from clay doesn't mean you can't be harmed by clay. That just means that's what your origin was. Your origin was clay. But are you a piece of clay walking around now? No. And that's your origin. Similarly, the jinn's origin was fire, but it doesn't mean that they're just fiery balls that's flying around fire. No. Right? This is a mistaken concept. Huh? But the, the Iblis was, among, was a jinn who was given certain uh, uh, powers and, and certain... Uh, abilities which Allah uh, made him higher and greater than the rest of the jinn. Just like among the angels, certain angels are given greater powers than the other angels. Like Jibreel, Gabriel, was given more powers and more responsibility than the others. Similarly, Iblis was given greater responsibility, etc., among the jinn. And he was allowed to be among the angels. So he was with the angels when the command was given. Allah said, call to the, to the angel, among them was Iblis, bow to Adam. And they all did except for Iblis. This is the... And this, you know, in terms of Islamic context, this is looked at as the original sin. If there is an original sin in Islam, it is the pride of Iblis, because that's what led him to not bow to Adam. So if... So if, you know, in talking with people, they talk about the original sin. It's important to clarify that for uh, for non-Muslims, Christians, etc. The idea that when we talk about in Christianity original sin in Islam, we have no original sin in the sense that you have a sin which is inherited generation after generation. We have no sin like that. But original meaning the first, yes, we have the first sin that was that of Iblis when he refused to bow to Adam, and his refusal was based on pride. This is why the Prophet ﷺ had said that anyone who has a mustard seed's worth of pride will not enter paradise. See, pride over out of race or out of country or any of these, ty- these types of pride where you feel you're superior to others, this destroys your iman. Because as Allah says in the Quran, إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ That the one who is most noble in Allah's sight is the one who fears Allah the most.
تحقیق بده 